Okay, so you open the door and step in. A pressure trap is triggered, and before your character Henrik can react, a scythe blade swings down, causing 13 points of damage to him. He falls to the floor, disemboweled, and dies in a pool of blood and offal. Alright, so you open the door, but do not step in. You look for the pressure trap, you bend down to disarm the trap, however, you fail to disarm the trap. In doing so, you trigger the trap before Henrik Jr. can react, a scythe blade swings down causing 13 points of damage. He falls to the floor, the top half of his head cut off, and dies in a pool of blood and brain matter. Jesus Christ! So you open the door, but do not step in. Henrik the Eighth looks down at the floor, where he suspects a trap to be. Henrik steps back and gently closes the door and moves off to find another door and another passage. Hello and welcome, fellow Grog Nerds. I'm Dean Geiken. I'm Eric Hawley. And I'm Greg Ziegler. And we want to welcome you back to another episode of the Grog Nerds. And this episode, our topic could be a little... Um, what's the best way to describe how we're going to go about talking about this topic? I we, think we're going to try to figure this out as we go along. Yeah. Um, our topic could be interpreted in many ways, and I'm sure many people have many different opinions of this, but it is the old school revival or old school versus new school. Or old school renaissance. OSR is how it's referred to. Just thrown around a lot. Yeah. And uh, we've been gaming since, well, the late 70s in terms of uh, our beginning of RPG gaming. And so we're kind of old school, but we're definitely very new school. Yeah. I, let's not dive too deep into this right away. Let's uh, let's talk about what we've done the past week. That's right. So uh, we always take a little time to find out what we've been gaming over the last week or so. And this is our segment, Games People Play. All right. So, Greg, uh, since the last time we got together, what have you been gaming? Anything in particular? Uh, I, like clockwork, my regular games. Uh, Star Wars game is cruising along. And um, no pun intended. I know. Well, we're we're not in space. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> oh no, definitely definitely uh, riding along uh, in our uh, speeders to stop whatever's going on. But yeah, it's it's definitely got a good old West flair to it. Tom is really good at that. And uh, Eric's bi monthly D and D game. Yeah, which we have another session coming up. What about you, Eric? Anything in particular? Um, so I've been getting ready for GaryCon. As which, we all are. Yeah, that's coming yeah. up. And um, I think I had mentioned previously, I, I want to start running Traveler at conventions. So I, I've been and doing a lot of game prep. You're also wearing... I am wearing the Traveler shirt. Traveler t-shirt. I died during character generation t-shirt. Is it really um, that tough to generate a character in that no, game? No, you don't normally die, but you can die. Okay. Um, and it's hmm. sort of special when the you do. The threat is enough. Yeah. Um, so I got my, uh, I found a map of the Spinward Marches on eBay, so I have that ready to go, and I've been doing a lot of research. So uh, not a lot of gaming, just the Wednesday Night Adventures League. Have you... Uh, submitted any traveler games to any convention yet? No, what you know, I'm still. We're probably talking a six month time frame because I want to first. I have to decide whether I'm going to run uh, pre generated adventures or make my own, mm -hmm. and then I need to play test regardless of whether even if I use an old one. It's been so long since I've run Traveler. I have a group of guys that are interested in in doing a couple sessions, so I'm probably going to run the adventure. I want to run it to convention a couple times beforehand, uh, just to sort of get my feet under me. All right. Well, I've been uh, kind of becoming the 
I don't know what you want to call it, the game master at our local pub in uh, my hometown. We had another Euchre night and also another game night. Went off very well. But uh, the Euchre night is getting a little out of control. Um, we had seven <laughs> full tables, and that's a lot of people. Yeah, it's 24 people for Euchre. And that's on a Wednesday night. When, 28 people. Uh, yeah, 28, 28 people. people. Well, that's actually, there was... A, too early in the morning. There was, a, there was actually 29 people, so we always had one person sitting out. Yeah, Which is bad. kind of upsetting a little bit when you've got one person kind of hanging out, twiddling their thumbs, but... They're at the bar drinking, so I really don't think they care. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of gone a little, not overboard, but it's certainly taken on a life of its own. And I don't know how much bigger it's going to get, but at some point, uh, I think I need some free beers out of this. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you should yeah. just get a little kickback from the bar. Yeah, Definitely. exactly. exactly. Uh, with the local game group here at Parkland College, the student group, we played a game of Crusaders. I GM'd that one because they all wanted to play it, and it's only a four-person game. So I sat out and I GM'd it so that they made sure that they were playing it correctly. And man, they played the heck out of it. They played two games in the space of two hours, which is a really great aspect about that game. It's a very fast game to play. And finally, I also got to play a game called uh, Melee, which is a Steve Jackson creation. It was produced back in 1981. It was part of his, what was the name of that uh, RPG system? The Fantasy Trip. The Fantasy Trip, which he re-released recently. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Is that part of that Kickstarter? It is. It is. By the time this uh, podcast airs, the Kickstarter will have been done, but maybe you can still pick up some of the goodies. I don't know All if right. he's going to market them after or not. Well, I got to play a game of that on Vassal Engine. Are you guys familiar with that? <laughs> no. Vassal Engine is basically a uh, all these board games that you can play. They're both new and old, and they're set up in kind of a... A play-by-mail system where you play your part, take your turn or whatever, and then you save the file, send the file to whoever your opponent is, and then they open it up. It plays that and gives a textual uh, description of what you've done and the dice rolls and the results of those dice rolls, and then they do their turn, save it, and send it back to you. Hmm, Cool. It's pretty cool. So that's what we've been doing, and uh, we hope that the rest of you out there in uh, Grognard land are also playing all kinds of cool games. And that's our segment, Games People Play. Yeah, so uh, going back to what Dean was saying earlier, you know, this is our take on this topic. It's not the only take, and this there's actually been a lot of controversy going on around mm-hmm. OSR, which is how we'll refer to it from now on, OSR. And uh, we just encourage people, you know, if you have your own take and you disagree with us, and by all means, start your own podcast and uh, you can talk about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, people can, can comment. It'd be interesting to see what, what our listeners think about this. But, um, you know... Keep in mind, keep it friendly. We're all all part of the same club here, same group, because the internet can be toxic. And no. whether you're old school or whether you are new school, it doesn't matter as long as you're all part of the same gaming school. Yeah. So there was some some news recently, and this really sort of opened my eyes. I didn't realize that there was like a whole movement. I've I've heard OSR, and I've known people were into old school games, but my impression of it was oh people just have a bunch of friends and they're like hey let's play first edition ad and and be like yeah let's do that that was kind of my take on it too that's what it seems like just agreed casually yeah. reading yeah but the apparently interwebs. it was more sort of formally organized than that and still is apparently um so the controversy was there was this uh, guy called zach smith and his i don't know ex-girlfriend or ex-wife something 
released a long statement on Facebook that he was physically and mentally and emotionally abusing her. Um, I don't know if that was his wife. I think that was his... I, I don't know, truth Girlfriend and, and, who was attached oh, to their marriage. Yeah, we don't want to get yeah. into that. Apparently, other people came out of the woodwork and said this guy was a real asshat most of the time, very manipulative. Um, and he was also one of that crowd. He got famous because he had porn stars playing D&D, and he started some stream of, of that, and he was a former porn star. And, you know, imagine there's drama that Could followed him. Could they not him, see right? the writing on the I wall? Know, I know. So... Um, but he was apparently a big central figure in the OSR movement. He had a Google Plus site that everybody would check in, and he helped people get more well-known and, you know, but then was also manipulative. And, and it was a whole big fiasco, and the Internet blew up around these sites for a couple weeks over these revelations. And, and apparently he's been ostracized and, and banished to some non-gaming location. I don't know. What is his credentials in order to be considered somebody who is an OSR aficionado? Apparently he made content. And from what I had read, his content was like sort of dark. and, and He made and, content for what uh, I know it was for D&D, but what Well, edition? no, it wasn't necessarily it wasn't? for D&D. It might have been. I don't know. I okay. haven't researched him that much. But um, he he generated content, like uh, my understanding is adventure content, and it was very dark and brooding, which given everything we now know is is no surprise. Um, Maybe he should have gone to work for White Wolf. Yeah, well, that was the other part of this. White Wolf had a bunch of people who um, got into trouble because it was they had a vampire supplement that sort of minimized, uh, like, I guess, was it sexual aggression or 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 uh, it, was, it was against children. It was. Yeah. Know, I mean, there was all kinds of. It was weird not cool. stuff. Yeah, um, it just does not belong in a gaming book. It, so people who want to know about that stuff, by all means, go and read it. We don't want to rehash it here, but. It, it did help me sort of crystallize, you know, the problem I have with some of these people who come into the game uh, gaming world, there are people who are famous through gaming, and there are people who want to be famous through gaming. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Gary Gygax, you know, uh, Larry Elmore, all these people became famous through gaming. So they, they did the work, they gained the fame. Then you have a whole bunch of people that are like, I want to be famous and I'm going to use gaming to do it. So I'm going to start streaming stuff. And I'm, and that seems a little backwards. I think the attitude they have is I'm going to use this as a springboard. I don't think any of the people that I respect, any of the famous gamers I respect, ever started with the idea, I'm going to use this gaming and I'm going to be really famous and maybe make a lot of money. I think they did it because they love gaming and it just happened that they – they became associated with it. Well, yeah, because yeah, that's the a fact good point, yes. Yeah, the fact is anybody who really knows much about gaming realizes especially in an old school sort of way, no one gets rich gaming. Yeah. Or famous gaming other than with other gamers. Uh -huh. Um yeah, it's just traditionally gaming has been a pathway to financial ruin because I mean, even Gygax ended up, yeah. you know, doing that. I mean, it's just, that's just the way it works. It's a hobby and monetizing a hobby to the level that these people want used to be unattainable. Well, in the days of now, in the days of YouTube, everybody thinks that they can become famous and rich within 15, 20 minutes. You get the right thing. You put it out on YouTube and boom, you're going to be famous. Yeah. 
And and I guess, you know, the, the one who straddles that line is sort of Matt Mercer, who does Critical Role, yeah. uh, because he was already a voice actor. He plays a game with a bunch of voice actors, but I don't think any of them intended to get famous through that show. I thought they, I think they just thought, hey, it'd be cool to do this. Let's all get together and do it. Yeah, I've Burns. heard them say that, that that was, they never imagined it was going to end up this way. And, and, and then whoops. It yeah, did. their first <laughs> season was actually a continuation of a prior game they had started. They had started in Pathfinder. Right. So- they weren't like, hey, let's use this as a springboard for fame. You know, it's something that caught fire, and because of it, they became famous and probably a little bit more wealthy than they already were. Yeah. I mean, they have their marketing and stuff like that. But, hey, you know, they provide good entertainment. Um, but on the other hand, you have people that are like, you know, I'm going to use gaming. I'm going to stream. I'm going to try to monetize it right away. I, I just leaves a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah, that's kind of got me uh, wondering, too, about the whole GM for hire thing or DM for hire. I see uh, I've seen discussions on Facebook about that before, and that polarizes people quite a bit. That some of those threads get pretty heated. When you say GM for hire, are you meaning people who go out to like game conventions and are looking to GM just for the badge? Or they're actually literally being paid by a company to come in and do the game. No, literally being paid by individuals. I've seen people mm-hmm. post on uh, 5e threads, you know, hi, I'm looking for a group. I dungeon master. I charge, you know, $20 an $20, hour yeah. to, to run this game. Essentially putting their resume out and, there. Yeah, and I'm looking for players. Yeah, I, I've participated in a couple. and. And truthfully, I don't know. What do you mean you participated? A couple threads. A couple okay. threads. Right. I thought maybe that. you no. had actually been hired. No, no. <laughs> okay. um, I, I don't. I would never do that. Uh, to me, that's part of, of contributing to the hobby is running a game. Mm-hmm. And I think, as I said before, I enjoy running as much as I enjoy playing. I'm and sort of a weird person that way. I think the vast majority of people who are at uh, gaming conventions or something like that are those people who want to contribute to the game. But I think that, Greg, are you talking about people who are wanting to hire themselves out in a location to come in and be the GM? Yeah. No, yeah. that's, no, yeah, that's I, what and There I've are seen. people. I've seen somebody post on a Facebook thread. You know, I live in Chicago, and, and I'm a full-time dungeon master. I have, you know, five groups that meet on, you know, different, yeah. different nights of the week, and they pay me to run their game in a campaign. What an interesting way to make yeah. money. Yeah, you know, they'll even throw that there. I've been running games for 30 years and or frequently less and uh, Yeah, usually it's less. It's, usually it's, it's a little less. Yeah, like I've never experienced anything anything like that, but I have experienced the uh pay to play GM at a gaming convention and I've had some uh bad ones. Yeah. But I don't they're know. there for the ticket, they're for the badge or yeah, whatever. Yeah, at a con that's a trade-off, I think, you know, you're willing to mm-hmm. to, you know, you run a game and the convention compensates you for doing that. And that's a little less skeezy yeah. because, you know, the the convention needs the game masters to be able to generate their money. So the, the game master is doing something for the convention, getting people to come to play in his game. So I see that as more of an exchange situation than a, you know, I'm going to, you know, come to your house or you're going to come to my house and but play D&D. on the flip side, just to play devil's advocate, if you got a bunch of guys that have more income than time, none yeah. of them want to run a game and they would pay you to run a game a decent rate and you got nothing else going on. You're working at the quickie mart <laughs> making minimum wage. I, I guess more power to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I capitalism just, at work. I, I suppose. Demand type of thing. I, 
I see it as morally reprehensible, but I understand the need for it in certain circumstances. I just I've never observed that in my life. <laughs> I, I don't want to minimize prostitution, but it sound, feels a little bit like yeah. prostitution. Yeah, yeah it scratches the itch, itch, but are you really getting what you're looking for? I wouldn't go quite as far far as saying it's morally reprehensible to me, <laughs> but yeah, I would have a few issues with it. At, you know, a pay to play DM that would be interesting. Yeah. I can't see myself ever doing that because, my gosh, I don't think that they could pay me enough to do that much well, work. How much pressure is it on the DM? Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, yeah. if I, not every session is a home run. I mean, some sessions I leave going, wow, I, sh- I could have done way better than that. Yeah, you know? yeah I know. I, I've been in a lot of runs where you show up and the game master just goes, eh, well, I don't really have a plan here today, but we'll just see what happens. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it becomes a job. And I don't yeah. want my hobby to be a job. Yeah. I have a job. Exactly. Yeah. You know? exactly. well, so, yeah, that, that's happened in my other games too, and and sometimes those are actually fun sessions because if you're if it's a long running thing, you know your characters, you know, and all you need is the GM to make you know rulings on what you guys are doing. It might be entertaining for him and relaxing for him to not have to plot something out and do all that. And, and I've seen the you know in the online threads that's the 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 paid GM's philosophy on that is it's going to take me you know. 8, 10, 12 hours just to plot this out and do yeah, all this. Yeah. So you're paying for my time. But by golly, if I was paying a DM, I want music. I want props. <laughs> I, you know, he better be providing minis. I, I want uh, Scottish yeah. accents for my dwarves. Yes. Damn straight. Yeah. yeah the, <laughs> Dancing the bar, girls in the tavern. The bar, And as a GM, I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. I, you don't so, do accents. I don't. I have one accent. <laughs> it covers all bases. Yeah. And um, so does Greg. It's the old prospector. That's right. <laughs> Damn straight there. <laughs> okay. So back to what we're supposed to be talking about. Right. Uh, OSR. So there's this dichotomy that started that basically really with the advent of fifth edition and around 2008 even. So before fifth, I guess fourth edition, right? The, the fourth edition I think was the, the gateway Probably, drug into fourth edition was so it. different. People said, Hey, we really liked old D and D. We mm-hmm. like the old way of playing games. We don't like this new fangled D and D. We want the old school. No style. participation trophy for you. <laughs> And to me, it didn't make sense, and probably for both of you, because I think this is mostly the younger crowd that sort of – younger than us that felt Mm -hmm. this way maybe. And this is just – I'm just guessing here. But for us, it was a continuum. There was no break. I mean, it was more of an evolution of D&D than a break from old school and new school. I would agree with that, but I would also say that in my personal experience, as that progression went from first edition to second edition, um, I had a little bit of an issue with second edition because it won. It wasn't first edition. It wasn't what I had kind of spent a lot of time and effort yeah. and really came to love. And then third edition came around. I realized it was a whole different monster, but it was still D&D to me. It was still gaming. I was still good with it. And then 4th edition came, and like you said, that was kind of the wall for me. Yeah. When 4th edition came out, I was like, I want none of this. I want what I had before. Yeah. So people, people, I think you're not the only one. I think that's probably what, what caused the schism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's actually easier for me to see because I didn't fantasy game for a long time. Yeah. I fantasy gamed in the 80s, and then all I did was sci-fi horror games for 20 years, and then... 
started playing 5e and i actually did notice and and since eric i was mostly played with you and i kind of i initially blamed it on your play style or your game mastering style but it isn't it's just the way the game is set up now that i've played with other people in that you know back in the day it was definitely you know you, exp- you know, as we're going to talk about you explain things more and now yeah. that it's now that we've kind of laid it out here and it's really evident how the play style is totally different when when we've been moving along i have been shocked at how fast our characters progress and god especially when you yeah. play adventures league everything is very much more even balanced and mechanical yeah so so <laughs> we're going to talk about you know what the differences are and i was just about to ask that so how do we define old school and new school so time wise a lot of people online put the dividing line at odd and basic dnd that's that's old school basic and earlier and they even count adnd as new school which blows my mind that's ridiculous because there's not prior pre-1977 there's not a lot of games out there i mean you're you're pretty limiting so Part of me thinks they don't even know what the hell they're talking about because they weren't playing back then. Yeah. Right? Just, um, and that's why – so I see the ODD to ADD was an evolution of D&D. Um, third really took a left turn and fourth did a 180 and, you know. Yeah. But, but – so I would consider old school AD&D and maybe even early second edition. I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that we could put our timeline at like early second edition and back. Yeah. So what's old school is not, and sometimes I see people make these claims. Some people claim, well, old school D&D was sandbox play, and new school's railroady, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I had many, uh, many experiences of railroady, old school D&D. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and some of those modules were total railroady. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, God, yes. I mean, <laughs> and Gygax himself even said, I put people in dungeons because it limited their options. I didn't want them to yeah. have a total sandbox. Yeah, I wanted them right to or left. Room or, one to room two yeah. to room three, right? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Railroad, we have a little commercial for a new box set from uh, Kanyuko that could, a new gaming supplement. So maybe. I tell you what, Kanyuko, I keep giving them all my money. Yeah, oh, they, they, they are they huge. They must be doing pretty good. They now. are huge. I'm expecting the Kickstarter any day now. <laughs> Let's give this commercial a listen. Are you tired of your players ruining the adventure you spent days planning? Do your players exhibit too much creativity and spontaneity? Kanyuko has the solution. The Greyhawk Near Div Railroad box set has all the tools you need to keep your players on the straight and narrow. What? You mean there's a railroad that can take us from Greyhawk straight to the Celadon Forest? That is awesome. Yup. It was started by an industrious gnome, Cornelius Vander Gnome, and the fare is cheaper than paying for a teleport. I just noticed that this trip is going to take us by the Abor Owls Mountains. There's a dwarven forge there, and so maybe we can swing by and I can see about getting an enchanted dwarven axe? That's a great idea. Unfortunately, the train only stops at designated stations. You can find them on the back of your ticket. Doesn't look like there's any stations near that dwarven stronghold, though. Man. Well, I'm positioned on top of the passenger car with my bow at the ready. Do I see any wandering monsters? Uh, Let me check. Ah, there is a wyvern up to the north, but he's out of range of your bow, and... He quickly fades into the distance as a locomotive steams towards your goal. Ah, shit. Okay, I'm going to walk through the dining car and see if I notice any coin pouches that I might be able to pickpocket. Okay, let me check. 
You see several affluent people eating lunch, but as you begin to size them up, the train slows and pulls into the station. The conductor has your bags ready and directs you to the platform. Here you are, governor. The Celadon Forest, your stop. The Greyhawk Near Div Railroad ensures your party follows the prescribed adventure path with minimal sidetracking and player agency. Order your copy today. The Greyhawk Near Div Railroad Company is not responsible for injuries resulting from railroaded players, including but not limited to pencil stab wounds, sharp dye punctures, or damage resulting from hurled cans of Mountain Dew. Disclaimer. We know that Near Div is correctly pronounced Near Dive, but Eric is too stuck in his old school ways to change, and frankly, he doesn't give a damn. Hey, th those players, they sounded familiar. I don't well, you know, I didn't notice anything. <laughs> you know, but, gamers tend to sound all the same after a while. Yeah. Um, okay. So going back to our conversation, you know, sandbox versus railroad, no bearing on whether it's old school or new school. No, absolutely. The not. other thing, sometimes people say, "Well, old school was a team game. You had to work together to succeed, and, and new uh, school is a solo game." Shit. Yeah. No. I mean, again, having played both, yes, that's not the case. Um, yeah. Here's another one I sometimes see. In old school, player rule mastery mattered. And then somebody else would be like, in new school, player rule mastery mattered. <laughs> Whether the players knew the rules. Has, no. It doesn't have any effect. There's players no. who have no idea. I see that in Critical Role all the time. Yeah. Those players have been playing 5th edition D&D for going on two or three years. And they still don't know the rules because Matt Mercer just sort of pushes them through the adventure and, and they don't need to know, but yeah. they should. Right. Um, and, and then some Latin. of our, some of my friends, and I think that you guys can identify with this back when we started playing, one guy knew the rules, the rest of them just kind of yeah. followed along. They're and like, they're, Oh, this is cool. What do I have to do now? There is a aspect of the rules that do matter. We're going to talk about that. Yes. But the players knowing or not knowing the rules they should know the rules regardless of what they're playing. And, you know, that's kind of yeah. how I developed my gaming uh, was that I depended on the DM to yeah. know the rules. I wanted the DM to give me that world and kind of describe it to me. And I didn't want to have to kind of – I wanted to find out a, about it that through him That was part of her. the mystique of old school was that if a DM knew a rule, it – like the player's like, oh, that's sort of cool. That's how you do that. Like, how do, I don't know how poison works until I get poisoned. Right. And then the DM's like, okay, make these rolls. Here's what happens. You become paralyzed. Like, I mean, back then that was sort of exciting. You're like, oh, that's sort of cool. Um, so the DM had those rules and the players didn't. And that also uh, leads me to think when I was a DM – I did not let my players have access to the monster manual. No, that was a big deal. Like, or the DM's guide. Yes, the DM's guide was kind of sacrosanct. It was, you know, you kept away from the, the players. Table. Yeah, you did yeah. not give it to the players. The, the players had the players handbook. Unless they wanted to try to be the DM, and then I kind of had to give yeah. over the reins to them. There was time I sat kind of in co-pilot seat mm -hmm. when they were DMing. To kind of help Early D&D was sort of like a pyramid scheme when you think about it. Like, because, <laughs> well, like, listen listen to me. It's a little. So I started because one of my friends went to summer camp in Maine and he came back and he was the only person that knew yeah. how to DM. So he played with a group and of that group, Doug, Doug Lawson and myself started to DM. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of our players would start to DM. And so you could actually chart the progression of D&D knowledge working its way through northern New Jersey, <laughs> right? Um, 
That yeah. was sort of interesting. Yeah, I think that pyramid scheme, people got smart too. And now my players have no desire to yeah, do I'm it. I'm still waiting for everybody to send me a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, yeah. my gamers, uh, my players right now, they're like, no, we're good with you being a DM. No need for that. We'll stay right It's much at. easier now. That, yeah. You know, the games have evolved where you don't need to have someone explain it to you. You can sort of figure it out or go on the internet. Yeah, you have access to resources. And if you had yeah. D&D yeah. Beyond, it's almost... Stupidly yeah, because I remember yeah. that back in the day when we were playing other games, uh, back when uh, my buddy Mike got us into role playing. Um, yeah, we all had a Palladium book, but the other games that we played, he had the one copy Top Secret, Star Frontiers. We had one box yeah. of those well, things. Well, mostly because you didn't he want to buy it. Yeah. It's expensive. No, it was. And so he was the only one that had it. We had one set of rules. Everybody, you, you only needed them to make up your characters. And, and whoever bought the game yeah. was the game master. Yeah, yes. that's Almost. the way it worked. That is because always if you the way were it interested enough to buy the game, you probably were the one who was most excited to, to run it. Yeah, yeah. and that kind of leads right into our, our set of notes here. Great ends. Yeah, so some, the other thing I hear is like, well, old school DMing, they were, you know, they were much better than current DMs. Current, it has no, no. I've, there's no. good DMs, there's bad DMs in every game. DMs have been sucking throughout the ages. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, so that's what it's not. So let's talk about what are the differences when people talk about old school gaming versus the, the new school. Okay. So the first one to come up, old school games are more deadly. I think that's fair. Yes, I would agree. I, I would agree 100%. That's why I wear my Traveler Icon Died During Character Generation t-shirt. And we're going to mostly refer to first edition D&D, AD&D, mm -hmm. right, when we talk about this. I but think even so, yeah. Basic and Beck Me, all those things. Um, you second, died a Second lot. edition, I think, could be considered one of those, you know, more deadly versions. Yeah, I mean, Wizards started with a D4. Right. Hopefully, your DM let you have max hit points at first level. That wasn't a given. No. Nope. Okay. And you died at zero. Yeah, there was no saving throws, <laughs> so, no death saves. As a wizard, you could literally get hit by a rock or fall 10 feet and be dead <laughs> at first level. Yeah. I mean, a rat could kill you yes. in the game. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was definitely more deadly. Um, and it's gotten less deadly because of other reasons, I think. Yeah, you didn't get too attached to characters, and there was no, there was no two-page character backgrounds and all that kind of stuff no. because there was a fair chance that that character wasn't going to make it to third level. So. And, and it, you know, the the historically, you look at the characters they had; they would start less like making the same character with different names because they would die so often. Yeah. You know, yeah. Bob I, and Bob's cousin and Bob's uh, second cousin and Bob's that is uncle. brought up in a. Um, a play called Of Dice and Men. Yeah. And one of the characters is like on his 13th or 14th iteration of a particular thief character because he keeps getting killed. Yeah. And they're playing first edition yep. in this. Yeah. My, my buddy Dave's uh, salty dwarf fighter Miller draft beer got uh, resurrected uh, as a new character over and over because he kept getting killed. Well, I don't <laughs> recall any of my players ever getting resurrected. It was just I was not using the actual was, term resurrection. Yeah. I meant he oh, kept okay. taking that character sheet and, and he wouldn't even re-roll. He yeah. would just say, "Yeah, yeah, now he's, you know, now he's, you know, salty old style." You need to be and, careful with your language usage when we're talking old school. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's a, the next thing that comes up. So, and and again, these are generally accepted, uh not always, but generally. So, Old school D&D is less story-driven. World events tend to dominate campaigns, and it's more simulationist. Okay? As, a, as opposed to new school, which is, tends to be more story-driven, character-level events dominate, and it tends to be more narrative. 
I would definitely agree that yeah. uh, new school is more story driven. I think, at least in my experience, but not always. True. And again, these are not one hundred percent. Yeah. But I see that as an evolution of role playing. Yeah. No. Yes. For sure. That you know, in old school, they weren't because it was more simulationist. It was basically just here's a challenge, overcome the challenge. That challenge can be a trap. That challenge can be a monster. But that was a big part of the game, which leads us to... Yeah, because the vast majority of people who are coming to role-playing games were coming from board simulation games. You know, you'd been playing Squad Leader and Axis and Allies and, well, let's play this new thing. So you were still coming from that mentality. Yeah, or and miniature gaming. You know, yeah. I mean... So in 2008, a gentleman named Matthew Finch, I believe, Yes, Matthew right, Finch. ...came out with a, a primer talking about the difference of this. And... Some people always link this when a discussion comes up. Other people disagree with this. But he has a good example of, of overcoming a challenge in a modern game versus an old school game. It so, was a really good read, too. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll put a link in, in the notes. You know what? I think that uh, if you're willing to give it a shot, especially with the pit trap, we could uh, probably voice this. If you sure. want to do the, the – I'll tell you what. I'll take the voice of John the Rogue. Okay. And you're going to be the GM. Okay. And Greg, not all of it's uh, – Greg can do the announcer thing because there's a part There's part of it where it's not speaking. It's just commenting. So Greg can do the commenting. All right. Are you guys okay. ready? So this so, is a dead read. This is dead cold. That's right. <laughs> so, and this is, hang uh, on, folks. So a pit trap modern style. Okay. This a is ten, new school. Yes. A 10-foot-wide corridor leads north into the darkness. I check for traps. What's your target number for checking? 15. Decides the pit trap in front of the party is standard, so all John needs to do is roll a 15 or better. Roll a d20. I got a 16. Probing ahead of you, you find a thin crack in the floor. It looks like there's a pit trap. Can I disarm it? What's your target number for that? Uh, 12. I rolled a 14. Okay. Moving carefully, you're able to jam the mechanism so the trap won't open. All right. We walk across. I go first. Okay. So one thing here that tells me, why would the character tell me the target number? So that sort of implies that the person who wrote this might not have a great understanding of new, like especially like modern D&D mechanics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the GM sets the target number. Right. Yeah. The the difficulty challenge. Yeah. yeah. So be, I'm not sure how yeah. that fits. Yeah. But it's, anyway. It's definitely situation. But what I think they're trying to say Situation is, die roll. Exactly. Greg's got yes. it right on, the, right on the money right there. It's, you know, it's roll, R-O-L-L. Yeah. Playing. All right. So here's the old school version of that, that challenge to overcome. <clears throat> A 10 foot wide corridor leads north into the darkness. Uh, we move forward, poking the floor ahead with our 10-foot pole. Jim is about to say that the pole pushes open a pit trap when he remembers something. Wait, you don't have the 10-foot pole anymore. You fed it to the stone idol. If the party still has the pole, John would have detected the trap automatically. I didn't feed it to the idol. The idol ate it when I poked its head. That doesn't mean you have your pole back. Did you go into the corridor? No, I'm suspicious. Um, can I see any cracks on the floor? Maybe shaped like in a square? The GM mulls this over because there's a pit trap right where John is looking, but it's dark. No, there are about a million cracks in the floor. You wouldn't see a pit trap that easily anyway. A different referee might absolutely decide that John sees the trap since he's looking in the right place for the right thing. Okay, I take out my water skin from my backpack and I'm going to pour some water onto the floor. Does it trickle through the floor anywhere or reveal some kind of pattern? Yeah, the water seems to be puddling a little bit around a square shape in the floor where the square is a little higher than the rest of the floor. 
Like there's a covered pit trap? Could be. Can I disarm it? How? Mm, I don't know. Uh, maybe make a die roll to jam the mechanism? You can't see a mechanism. You step on it, there's a hinge, you fall. What are you going to jam? Uh, I don't know. Okay, let's just uh, let's just walk around it. You walk around it then. There's about a two-foot clearance on each side. Okay. So much more involved, old school, in terms of problem solving. Right. A little bit more give and take. Uh, the a lot GM, more thinking. Yeah, uh, the GM kind of responding and in turn the player responding to the GM. So... But that's kind of how some of my games currently go. Yeah, and there's nothing stopping you from doing things that way. Uh, I play a lot of 5th edition, obviously, and in many of the games I play, the DM will say, um, I I hate this with persuasion. This is my pet peeve. I try to persuade the guard, let us go. Let us go by. I convince them that, you know. Clack, 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 the dice go down. I I rolled 27. Okay, the guard lets you go by. That, to me... Is too new school. I mm-hmm. always say, what are you telling them? What are you telling the guard? And make people, and sometimes players who aren't familiar with me, like at conventions, they look at me like I have three heads. Like, what are you asking me? I don't understand. My character is good at this. Why do I have to be good at it? Yes, I get that. That's I, called role playing. It's called role playing, and I make my <laughs> players do that. I say, what are you saying to them? And then I give them that dice roll, and depending on what they said, how it relates to either the situation I sometimes give them a bonus they don't know about mm-hmm. and say, it's good. You persuaded him. Or, or a he's like, or a negative. yeah, or a negative. Or he's like, ah, he's not taking the bait on that one. He thinks you're full of crap. The same with the fifth edition help action. Sometimes mm-hmm. players will be like, I'm going to help. I'm going to take the help action. So they have bonus. Like, what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> you know, describe what you're doing. It's probably not going to make a bit of different mechanically. The person's going to have advantage, but I want you to tell me, you know, try to get into your character. What are you doing? That's a very old school technique. It's part of the cooperative storytelling experience. Which, I, uh, I kind of see a little bit of a uh, a conflict here. If you're kind of an old school DM in a new school game, and you've got a new school gamer, and they want to roll that dice because they have min-maxed the crap out of their character. Yeah, and and something they do that annoys me is roll the die without me telling them to. Mm-hmm. I hate players that don't wait for the instruction to roll a die. So how does a DM who wants to play that old-school way handle that new-school gamer, especially the new-school min-maxer, who yeah. knows that, man, I can do this with one roll of dice because I've yeah, got just all these character. That's usually <laughs> Just kill. Just kill. <laughs> like a stone block falls and crushes you. You can't kill a character in new school. I know. <laughs> uh, no, you know what? I, that's part of the, the art of DMing. Yeah. Is sort of leading that. If You should be pushing your boundaries of comfort in terms of role playing all the time, in my opinion. And I think the DM needs to kind of set some ground rules as to how the game is going to progress. Yeah, and I'll tell people. I'll You know, when someone, like I said, I have a pet peeve where someone says, I make a perception check, you know, and roll. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'll tell you when to roll, okay? And I, I lay it right out there early on. I, I address it as quick as I need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, because normally when someone says, I take a perception check, I say, what are you looking for? Or where are you looking? And then I'll tell them to make the roll. So so you, you address it. You try to get people to sort of be better yeah. players, in my opinion. Okay. Well, let's keep going. Okay. So old school. <clears throat> Another characteristic, specific and quirky rules often relying on DM fiat versus new school comprehensive generalized rules. Well, 
there are some weird ass rules in the early editions of D and D. So I would have to say that's spot on. Yeah, and and they didn't again when you're when you have that mindset of problem solving versus just overcoming challenges with a die roll. You don't need all those those crazy rolls. You're, you're going to leave it up to the GM. Um, I had one, and actually just recently in Adventures League, uh, playing 5th edition, and one of my players commented about it afterwards. That was really cool that you did that. So the situation was there was a caster who had Misty Step, and the party was just beating him senseless, and he was not going to last another round. Well, he was in this uh, cobweb-filled, like giant spider cobwebs uh, temple. So what the character did was he cast Minor Illusion and made a little 10-foot stone cube in the corner of the room. And then he misty-stepped, because you can only cast a cantrip if you cast a spell of any level, um, up into the cobwebs. So the group thought he put himself in the little stone box. Okay, so they spent a round, like they ran up to the stone box, they attacked it, of course they go right through because it's an illusion. So then they realized, wait, he's not in the stone box, where the hell did he go? It took him a couple rounds to figure it out, but eventually somebody looked up, well, he's supported by the cobweb. So you could see the bulge, and somebody rolled an incredible perception roll, and I waited till I, they said, we're looking for him, where are you looking? Well, I'm going to look up. Oh, there you go, you look up. Roll a perception. Roll perception, and they see him. Well, then the person wanted to hit him with magic missile. Well, Magic Missile says you have to see your target. And there's a thick layer of cobwebs between him and them. You said you can see the bulge. But you can see the bulge. So now, can you shoot him with a Magic Missile? How did you rule that? I said, if you give me an Arcana check with a DC 12, I will let your Magic Missiles hit. Otherwise, you're going to try to use your magical knowledge... To me, that's a very old school ruling. Mm-hmm. All right, well, here's a here's a dilemma that's not clear in the rules. How are we going to resolve? I'm just going to make something up. And one of the players was like, "That was really cool." Like, and it does add more flavor to the game. It does. It does. And I'm not saying that you know you're the only one that does that. I'm sure there's you know hundreds of DMs who do yep. that type of problem solving. So there was really this whole old school new, new school controversy is still something that I'm having trouble dealing with because for us it's not it's just yeah. playing but i could easily see a player flopping over a play open a player's handbook and pointing with here it says yes. I, if i can see my target i can see i can see him he's you know and, and trying to say by the book i need to be able to hit that target right. I, you know that's the ruling so and that kind of gets into our next uh, our next point here greater dm authority in old school lesser DM authority in new school. You have a little note here that 5e tried to increase DM authority. Explain that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, 5e, one of the things they said was rulings, not rules. Right. D&D had been drifting away from that. They had become... Absolutely. ...been very rule-heavy. I do believe that somewhere in the first edition rules that Gygax had actually said, and maybe the forward or the introduction or something like that, this is not a set of rule books. This is a set of guidelines. Yeah, yeah. In the the, uh, intro... To the DM's guide, he, he talks talks about that. Yeah, right? that stuck with me from the very beginning yeah. of my playing experience. That was just guidelines, and no matter what, if I didn't like it, I could change it. He had my money already. Yeah. <laughs> um, this came up recently, in a, again, online. Somebody was saying that you could, if you were a rogue, you could attack with sneak attack on your turn, 
And then if a creature, uh, if you got an opportunity attack also on your turn, which I'm not sure the circumstances that that would happen, but let's say you did, you could sneak attack again. But under sneak attack, it says you can only sneak attack once per turn. So if your opportunity attacks on the same turn that you already use your sneak attack as your action, you can't sneak attack twice. Uh, well, Jeremy Crawford had two separate tweets, one saying you could and one saying you couldn't, <laughs> that were a year apart in time. Um, so, again, there's still a little bit of that, but it can be problematic if you have players that anticipate the rules say this, and then they don't. The other big problem mm. is that whole spell casting with the bonus action spells and all that, which is a whole other quirky rule set in 5th edition. Yeah. AD&D had way more of those quirky rules. How rules, because it was not standardized at all, so rules interacted in weird ways sometimes. Yeah, and if you go way back in some of our podcasts, we have an entire uh, episode dedicated yeah, to that. Yeah, quirky AD&D rules. Yeah, my my thing on that was always if somebody was arguing with the Game Master for more than 30 seconds oh. about it, I would just go, you know what? He's the Game Master. What he says goes. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> Hands up there, Greg. You got it, man. I, seriously. My view is you get one appeal or one clarification. So yeah. if I make a ruling... By all means, if you're playing, really? Because I thought it was this way. If I go, no, it's this way, you're done. After that, you can talk to me after the game, right? Yeah. Um, so. Or the other thing, too, is perhaps there is some sort of circumstance that you are not aware of that's affecting this role. And he's the only one that knows that. He's the only one that can tell you that. Yeah. I mean, maybe there, you know, maybe I, the I went to a convention. Got that, something going on. That the players rated the GMs. And. It was like a one to five scale. And I got fives from all my players, except for one person gave me a four for rules knowledge. And I knew exactly who it was because <laughs> um, he had gone after a monster. Uh, and the monster, what's that? It was a chill touch, the one that gives you hit points back when you hit, mm -hmm. like equal to half your damage, I believe it is. So the monster chill touched him, rolled like 14 damage. Um, he only had like two hit points. Well, oh, I healed the monster for seven. And he's like, no, it should only heal for one because I only had two hit points. And I said, no, it's actually the day you get half the damage rolled, whether you that damage goes to you or not. Um, he didn't like that. And he started arguing. I go, well, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's going to be one hit regardless, okay? The difference between seven and one or whatever. So we moved on. Well, guess who was right? Me. <laughs> you get the full damage rolled, not the damage inflicted. Yeah. So um, – so I knew that guy gave me a four for rules knowledge, but it's that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. um, you get one appeal and and then you need to move on. And, and AD&D, &D, I don't even know if you argued with the DM at all. I don't remember very often that you would. That was just opening the door to get your character killed. Yep. Yeah. Um, so here's one that you don't hear as much, but I think it's, it's true for differences. Uh, old school was not balanced and no. new school is balanced. So, and this is across all kinds of levels. Character classes mm -hmm. were not balanced. Nope. Okay, no. I mean they varied all. greatly. Um, all you yeah. have to do is listen to some of our uh, info dumps on the character classes in yeah. the early part of the podcasts, and we talk about the first editions where you know 
some of these character classes, you're surprised that anybody picked them because they were so un- unbalanced compared to the other one. Yeah, I mean, wizards were incredibly weak at low levels and incredibly powerful at high levels. Mm-hmm. They were the weakest class at first level and the most powerful class at 14th level. And advancement wasn't equal across no. all the classes and everybody no. didn't get their prize at every level at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and even look at stupid things like strength. Strength had a percentage score if, if you, you were, were a fighter. fighter. <laughs> yeah. But no one else got that. Yeah, and yeah. depending on the race that you picked. Certain things yeah, you had could level or could not be happening. I mean, it, there was all kinds of crazy. Mm-hmm. New school, it's very much about balance. We yeah. want everybody to feel like they're they're equal to everybody else. Yes. Um, but it even no goes beyond character characters to encounters. In old school games, if you were a first level group, you could very well bust open a door and see a troll. You know what you needed to do? Run. Because <laughs> yeah. there was no way a first level party was taking down a troll. Yeah. Okay. Unless they were loaded now with we have lots of oil and fire. Yeah, even then, a troll yeah. was going to shred you. Okay, yeah. now yeah. we have challenge rating. God forbid we put the characters in a situation they can't win. They have to be able to fight everything. I tell you, I, I tell you guys, I don't follow that challenge rating at all when are. I do my games. Yeah, I know. I think we were what maybe third level when we were all tromping along. And we went, we were headed, we were getting ready to go down this cavern. And uh, you said, there's a mind flayer down there. And we all ran like schoolgirls in the opposite direction. (laughs) And we were like, we're never going there again. We're not even looking there. We don't know anything about that. And I think we like left the area. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's just some places in the world you should not go. Right. You know, I run a sandbox style campaign. Just because you heard about it doesn't mean that's where you want to go. Right. You should go back and whip on that mind flare now. You probably could now. <laughs> you guys are uh, pretty far up there. So uh, another one, which we sort of talked about when we read the example, character actions are more concrete. So characters observe and describe. And often goals are achieved through a series of action roles in old school. So you're much more descriptive of what your character's doing. New school characters' actions are more abstract. Ab- abstract. So uh, they tend to be role-based and often you describe the goal and then you make your role. In a general sense, I would agree with that. But I think that it happens much more of a blending in real life. I think so, at least in my experience. Hopefully. I would yes. hope. But I frequently see I disarm the trap, D20 hits the table. In Adventures League, it's definitely like that. Yeah, yeah. So another thing. So old school D&D was heroic. Your characters were heroes. Yes. Right? So you were better Slightly than the average Slightly better commoner. than average. At first level... You are average. You were pretty average. Well, uh, unless you're a fighter, a, a or commoner maybe a, got a D6 hit point. So a wizard was actually weaker than a commoner. Yeah, I know. But yes. a fighter, you know, you had your D10. So you were, and mm-hmm. you had armor proficiency and weapon proficiency. So, and even at higher levels, you weren't godlike. I mean, when you most classes attain their their name level at 11 or was it 11, 14. I can't remember, but somewhere up there, and then they were really powerful, but they could still get their butt whooped. Oh, I mean, yes, by many of the creatures, either in the uh, the Monster Manual or the Deities and Demigods. Yeah, books. I mean, one of my favorite early games was uh, I swarmed a really high-level barbarian with low-level uh, townsfolk. And the barbarian's like, this is going to be a breeze, right? These are the zero-level townsfolk. Guess who went unconscious? Uh-huh. <laughs> because yeah. with enough of them, they will take you down. Yes. I mean, one in five or one in 20 is going to hit, a 5% chance to hit if there's... You know, 500 town folk, 
they're going to wear you down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also part of the reason to have dragons in your adventure, because at some point you just got to have a dragon to knock these sons of guns down. Yeah. Now, new school is what I would consider super heroic. Your characters, by the time they get to high levels, essentially have superhero abilities. Mm -hmm. They could do stuff that is outside the realm of possibly everything in old school. You could be like, okay, I could see somebody, you know, achieving that. And I think you hit on the one thing that I find the most, I don't want to say the word distasteful to me, but it's the one thing that I dislike the most in 5th edition new school gaming is that super heroic ability of some of these characters to just pull off feats and actions that kind of break the game for me. Yeah. I can see why they did it because it makes the characters feel good Mm -hmm. and it's fun to do cool stuff. Everybody likes to succeed. Very few people like to fail. But at one point, if it becomes too easy. Yeah. Everybody wants to be Legolas sliding down that elephant (laughs) trunk after killing all those things. Yep. Still only counts as one. Yeah. Greg brought this Next one up earlier. Slow advancement in old school, fast advancement in new school. Uh, I'm still, I'm still, to this day, we've been playing, what, four and a half years? At the end of runs, when experience points get handed out, I'm still flabbergasted at the, the quantity of experience points that we get at the end of every session. I'm like, really? Well, wow. in all fairness, I, I have given you guys <laughs> more than you have earned because I want, we meet... Once a month. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if you level every other session, that's 40 months. That's three and a half years worth of gaming. Assuming we play every month, sometimes we will miss one. Yeah. Um. So I, I sort of, in my mind, I was like, there's going to, because I want to get to an end game. Mm-hmm. I want to get to level 20 because it's always fun. And I also feel, I do kind of the same thing with my players. I think they want to take on a bigger challenge. They're tired of fighting the orcs and the bugbears and stuff like that. They kind of want to, you know, have a challenge that's a little bit more meaty. And in order to do that, for them to not get squashed right off the bat, they need to be a little bit higher level. Yeah, But also, that's relevant to the heroic, super heroic, because in old school, in AD&D, you didn't get that much when you leveled. No, no. Wizards got, casters got new spells every other level, just like they do now. Fighters got hit points. And they got what they now call the proficiency bonus. Basically, you read your what number you needed to hit off a table, and every two levels, fighters adjusted one column, which was yes. another plus one. For fighters, it was mm-hmm. every two levels. For wizards, it was every five levels. Oh, gosh, One yes. through five, six through ten. The poor uh, wizard with his quarterstaff. Rogues yeah. <laughs> were every third, I believe. So did stick. Uh, but that was on the DM side of the screen. Yeah. Or, or Greg, it was darts. Darts were oh, the other darts, things yep, that darts. wizards used. Yeah, you have to have your darts. What was that? Uh, it was it was a one d uh, not a one d three. One d three. Yeah. Was it one d three? Pretty sure it was. And like, they didn't provide well, a one d three. You just had to no, roll one d six divided six. by two. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I won't bother looking that up, but <laughs> <laughs> for the one d three, I'm pretty sure it was though. So, you know the the advancement you didn't get a lot. So. You know, it was cool to advance, but you were still overcoming a lot of the same challenges. What you mostly got was hit points and survivability, mm-hmm. and, and you acquired magic as you went, yes. which was not so level dependent. But yeah. That's something the- that I have noticed in new school and the games that I have been able to play is that maybe I'm in a different situation in the games that I've been playing. There's not a lot of magical reward, not a lot of magical items that are part of the reward. I remember in old school, if by third level you didn't at least have a plus one sword of some sort or another you felt like you were getting cheated i don't know maybe that was a little you too know, much monty hallish 
You know what mechanic peeves me now? We're gonna go a little side. One of Eric's uh, side side Get off comments. Eric's lawn. Here. Uh oh. Here's so, the segment of. Okay, Get off so, my lawn. Yeah. So in old school in AD and D, you had monsters that could just be hit by anything. Mm-hmm. Then you had monsters that could only be hit by plus one or better. Yeah. Plus two or better. Plus three or better, plus four or better. I don't know if there's a plus four or plus five, but they differentiated the level of magic. In fifth edition, it just needs to be a magic weapon. Mm-hmm. They have damage resistance. They take half damage from everything. In AD, I'm pretty sure they didn't take any damage. Wasn't there also some type of uh, uh, allowance for masterwork weapons? Maybe they, that, was that in came 30- in later. Yeah. Masterwork gave hmm. you a plus one to damage. Yeah, I believe it or was. in terms of being able to hit a certain creature. I don't think that did. You know, and even in fifth edition now, it's you know it needs to be either an adamantine or a magic weapon or a mithril or a magic uh, mm-hmm. magical whatever it is. I, I just. I liked where certain monsters, guess what? You ain't hurting them because you're not, you don't have yeah. the right weapons. Like, that's again, there's sometimes you need to run. Yeah. Uh, but back to what I was talking about, do you guys find that magic items are less available? I think that's GM dependent. Okay. Supposedly, when 5th edition came out, they wanted it to be a rare magic item game. So mm-hmm. magic items were rare, and that's why they didn't put values on magic items. That lasted a month because if players even. want magic. It's fun to yeah. to get stuff. And when you say, well, there's going to have a whole, we're going to have, a, you know, 20 pages in a DMG, but you're not going to get hardly any of them. You know, players want to buy and sell magic. They want to haggle. So almost everybody I've run into, magic is more plentiful than intended in 5th edition, which breaks some things. Yeah. Now, in 1st edition, I remember paging through the magic items kind of like a kid in a candy store not for myself but for possibilities to give to the players in which to work a story around yeah how many times and it was supposed to be random determination yes it was and and god what percentage of the time did you roll and then go no i'm not gonna give them that many times (laughs) many times especially if they you know over 50 percent of the time you said yeah but that was part of the fun, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. And players would go on quests for particular magic items. I need a magic sword. I'm going to go research where I can find a magic yeah. sword. Okay. Well, yeah. We'll let you track one down. Those times when I would say, nope, 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 it would be things like uh, uh, Staff of the Magi yeah. or Deck of Many Things, which yeah. was always kind of fun, but... It's, it a breaks le- the campaign. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, Certainly it, some of the characters. Yes. yes. <laughs> Broke them in half. Okay, so the more so those are what I think are the more accepted differentiations between old school and new school. Now, there's some that are more controversial, and I've seen online discussions ad nauseum about this. So one of it is that old school had a lot of failure. You failed a lot, which was probably true. Mm-hmm. And new school, it, you fail forward. So instead of no, it's no but. I think that's kind of a... a- an aspect of our society now. I don't know if I want to go there, but what I think it is, in my view, is an aspect of role-playing. In my mind, role-playing has developed. Yes. If I just say hard no, I've just shut you down as a co-creator of this reality. Mm -hmm. If I give you a no but, you continue to participate in the process, right? I want to uh, swing across the chandelier and uh, end up on the other other uh, side of the room on the, the elevated uh, walkway. Okay, well, you can't do that. It's The chandelier only has got five-foot rope. It's a 30-foot thing. Uh, but 
you know, there is a banister you could slide down. Then you could use your movement to move across. You know, you'd have to pass a couple enemies. So that's the difference. Now, you know, I know what your goal is. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving you an option that your character would probably realize that maybe you haven't thought of, but, you know, the character's surveying the scene. So to me, that's the difference. That's fair. Um, So it, it might be, you know... Again, these these sort of relate, but I don't know if they relate particularly for old school, new school, or just because gaming has developed. Um, second one, old school was about strategy, and new school is about tactics. <sighs> yeah, I don't know if I I would agree with that one. I I think it depends on what kind of game absolutely, you want to play. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It all depended on what the story was or how the DM wanted to... Take gaming, you. That's a gaming style issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, mechanically, the systems can influence whether a game is strategic or tactical. Absolutely. Um, but I don't. I don't think it's tied to either new school or old school. Um, okay. So next one. Old school was more problem solving, exploration, and action oriented, and new school is all about achieving goals. Well, certainly, Adventures League is all about achieving goals. You know. I th- I think adventures are all about achieving goals. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's kind of what the whole purpose of them being written for is. Yeah. I, I don't know if that – I don't disagree with that. But again, I don't know if it's a characteristic of the gaming or the evolution of our hobby. Um, and let me just give you a sort of a, a quick example. Um, when Vampire the Masquerade came out, you know, I played a little bit. I'm not a huge I'm not vampire familiar player. with it. It's vampire role playing. I mean, it's sort of cool, but um, they reframed an adventure in a series of scenes. And prior to that, I was an old school DM where I, my adventures were a series of encounters. I had rooms. I had a dungeon. It was all one big encounter. It was just slight pauses between busting down the door, killing monsters, taking treasure. Right. Vampire sort of go, wait a minute, we could rethink of adventures almost like a, a movie experience. You know, when you're watching a movie, you don't see the play, the, the characters when they leave the house to go to the food store. They don't show you 15 minutes of them sitting in the car fiddling with the radio driving to the food store. They're in the house, then they're at the food store. Mm-hmm. Okay. Early D&D, you had 15 minutes to sit in the car fiddling where they're yeah. radio going to the food <laughs> yeah. store. Yeah, right. Especially if you were doing outdoor travel. New school games tend to be more cinematic. Okay, you want to travel there? Okay, well, let me see if maybe I'll roll an encounter roll. If anything interesting happens, otherwise, you're just there. Right. It took you two days. You show up. You get some food. Because Mm -hmm. the the interesting part of the story happens at the food store. Nothing interesting is going to happen on the way, right? Unless I decide it does. And then then that becomes another scene like it Mm -hmm. would in a movie. Okay, they get in a car accident. Well, obviously, they wouldn't cut that out in a movie and show up at the food store with their car all banged up and a bruise on their forehead. <laughs> Honestly, I kind of hated the whole exploration part if you were traveling over land in early editions. I it, I thought it just drug on too much when, like you said, you kind of wanted to get to the meat of the story. Yeah, so that ties into achieving goals, I think. I think that's similar in mm-hmm. that what, what are we trying to do here? And how do we want to get it done? So new school definitely probably has more goal stuff. But again, I see that as the evolution of the, of the art of DMing and of the you know, role playing for players versus, oh, we've totally abandoned it. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Like you said, I didn't enjoy that. Yeah. Isle of Dread with that hex crawl. 
Yeah. Okay, it was interesting for like the first 30 minutes. Yeah. And then everyone's like, okay, just roll, 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 get to where we're going. Tell us when something happens. That's that's literally how it turned out. Mm-hmm. Just we're gonna here's the yeah. path we're gonna take. Tell us when something happens. Exactly. And that's how it developed for me. I was like, okay, yeah, that happens here's lot, where yeah. you're at, here's where you wanna go. This is what happens. I roll some dice, it's like, okay, so on the third day something <laughs> happens. Yeah. Okay, so another one. And and again, this one again. I think it has some relevance. I don't know if it's directly tied to it. Old school is player driven and new school is character driven. I see them as one and the same and it's dependent on the player. In a sense that, you know, if I I read this the way I think you're trying to explain it, character driven. So you're trying to your character is more important than the player. I so here here's an example, and people will get new players will get frustrated. Um, if we're playing a D and D game and I pull out a riddle and I throw it on the table, here's the riddle. Get the riddle right. Door opens. Old school. Everyone's like, oh okay, and they start looking at the riddle, fi- trying to figure it out, and they're talking back and forth. New school will look at the riddle. Not be able to figure out and go, well, my character has an 18 intelligence. <laughs> that would have never even entered the equation in AD&D. No. Okay? It's the player that's playing the game. Right. And your character is going to, you know, obviously if your character is better at casting spells and swinging a sword than you likely are. Um, although I am quite the swordsman. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that is a distinct difference is but then on the flip side i think new school fifth edition people put way more effort into making their character a distinct entity you know all in old school all my characters were sort of me in a wizard robe or me in armor new school i have characters that are nothing like me because that's more interesting for me to play you know what i'm coming to the realization as we talk here that maybe I have cultivated my players, and I've got a very small group of players that are a really good blend of the old school, new school, because I have done this. I've had an adventure where it's nothing but riddles in it, and the characters, I should say, the players never once said, oh, my character can do this because of this particular stat or ability. But that but goes they, back to what we said originally. We grew up. To yes. us, there was no distinct right. break. It was just an evolution of our gaming. So when I do encounter a player who is like, well, I've got an 18 intelligence. I'm going to make this roll. Do I figure out the riddle? I speak this language, blah, blah, blah. It kind of irks me a little bit. Um, so I guess I'm kind of lucky. Now that I'm looking back on this and we're talking about this, I think that I've cultivated a set of players that ride that line. They know their character, they know their abilities, they know their stats, but they're still playing it as the player. Yeah. But I think that's coming from you because that's the way you run the game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. Uh, so, you know, the last one that, that I want to bring up that's sort of semi-controversial, uh, which I think is true, but I don't know if it dictates what style of gaming is that in old school you had infrequent rewards and new school you're getting participation ribbons. I don't play a lot of uh, uh, Adventures League. I did play Greyhawk, um, uh, Living Greyhawk and such. That's kind of how I felt about those organized plays. 
Well, yeah, organized play is definitely all about the participation ribbon. Yeah. And I did Organized play is a whole different creature. It really I, is. I understand. It really is. I understand. And I'm not denigrating the players who do that. And we do will that. do a podcast on organized play in yeah. the future. And I'll probably have nothing to say about that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll have a lot. <laughs> well, I might. But, and I don't want to, you know, take away from those people who do it. I know you guys both do, but it just soured me for playing that. It's, it's a different animal. It and, really is. But- uh, the participation ribbon even goes beyond that. If we look at, let's just take the most basic class, the fighter. Mm-hmm. In AD&D, uh, a fighter, you got very little stuff as you leveled. Like I said, uh, you started with your pro- armor proficiencies, weapon proficiencies. Yeah. As you leveled, you got hit points. You end up getting Maybe followers. a little bit better stat of being able to hit something. But then in 5th edition, you get all kinds of goodies once you hit 3rd level. And yeah. in 1st edition... Third level gives you what? Um, I think you move up on the the two hit chart one. Yeah, so at one third segment. level as a fighter, you're, yeah, you you move one column in your to hit chart, um, and you're getting a hit die. Basically, you're getting a hit die, and every other level you're moving up, uh, you get one more plus one, and then at ninth level you can establish a freehold and gain followers. Okay. That's all you're getting. Yeah. That's and it. what happens to a fighter in third level in fifth edition? I mean, you get all kinds of what? Greg, you well, you know um, all I that don't, kind of stuff. I don't have the. You get your fighting style. I think it's second or is it first for fighters? I mean, you. Yeah, you're, I don't remember. Regardless, you're picking fighter. up from one to twenty. You're picking up fighting styles. You're picking up feats. You get feats more frequently than other characters. Um, you get you know special abilities that are specific uh, to to your attacks. You could be a battle master. A, Whatever the sub other archetypes are, you can increase your uh, attributes. You know your yeah. Those are those are feats or ability score yeah. increases. Right, but what I'm uh, if I remember right in first edition, the only time those could be adjusted, I think, was sometimes if you aged. Oh yeah, they go down. They would go yeah. up oh, or they down. Could, yeah, they could go depending up if you on if you young. aged like over twenty one. Your strength and your yeah, your you would gain wisdom and intelligence as yeah. you got older. Yeah, I mean, so you had age adjustments, which was never clear. If you got magically aged by a ghost, why would you gain wisdom and intelligence? And, <laughs> no, like, no. yes, you would lose strength and dex, but uh, we've had many a discussion. You would about know that. better than to mess with ghosts. Yeah, I was yeah. just going <laughs> to say that. not yeah. to mess there with ghosts. Mm-hmm. But so. So there was hardly any ribbons. Their ribbon was making it through the dungeon alive. Yeah. <laughs> making it through the adventure. Your ribbon was increasing in level, which got you more hit points or more survivability, and maybe some magic items. Um, that's, you know, th- there is definitely that thing where players are getting more stuff in new school games as they level. Their characters are becoming more powerful and more super heroic instead of just heroic. Yeah, but, but the system itself is more complicated. The characters are more complicated. So perhaps the rewards are more complicated. Yeah. That's one way to yeah. look at it. And again, I don't know if that's a clear like, oh, we want to do it this way or just the hobby has progressed and to, well, it can handle it. Early on, we had a bare bones framework for adventuring, you know, and that's that's how we started. But now as more people contribute and we have more game systems. People go, oh, well, it's more fun if we do it this way. Yes, it does lead to a different feel of the game. Um, and some people prefer that. That's why we have the old school, you know, OSR, old school revival, old school <laughs> renaissance. Now, go ahead. all that being said, I play, I've started playing old school games. Uh, 
at GaryCon last year, I played Carlos Lising, um, ran a AD and D game. Um, he's got a little company. He does adventures, so we were playtesting one of those, and it definitely has a different feel. Yes, and it's fun, and it brought back a lot. I was reminiscing about, oh wow, because I had forgotten how different it felt. Yeah, I played a uh, first edition at Winter War, not this year, but last year, and had an absolute blast, and it was definitely a different feel. I played it with my daughter, who had never played it before. She was very concerned that she wasn't going to be able to do it. But then she came to the realization that so much of it was going to be, at least the way the DM was running it, solving problems, character role play, and all that good stuff, and she had a blast. Yeah, yeah, a lot less rules would. to remember. Yeah. But you could run a fifth edition game that way. Absolutely. You know, and, and after I did that, that's when I was like, I'm going to start to incorporate more of these old school elements into my, my fifth edition games. And I guess I, I'm lucky that I just never really stopped doing it that way. I guess I just kept running it first edition with fifth edition skin. Yeah. That's the way I would describe it. Yeah, for me, the difference is that as time went on and rules got more clarified, uh, it took more out of the DM's hands. The DM was no longer the one making these decisions. The book was. Yeah, yeah. It was about the rules and not the rulings. And I think that's why when 5th edition came out, they purposefully said rulings, not rules. Because I wasn't the only one that realized that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Other people had realized it, the game can be more fun when there's a little bit of the unexpected and your the players aren't exactly sure how things are going to be resolved, right? And they said that, and then they threw a whole bunch of rules at you to explain <laughs> yes. it. Yeah, yeah. So mixed just, message. Yeah, fifth edition doesn't do a great job, but you know it's funny because people still, you know, they will argue about certain things. They can't let it go. You know the know. the you know casting. It comes up again with this with the spells. Can you counterspell? Which is a reaction on the same turn. Let's say I cast Misty Step to get into position, right? And then I'm going to cast Firebolt at an enemy wizard. Okay, so I've cast a bonus action spell, and now I'm casting my cantrip. He casts Counterspell on my my Firebolt because he has one hit point left. He doesn't want to die. Can I Counterspell his Counterspell? I believe that came up on our last run, didn't it? It might have. Yeah. Okay. It was a counterspell extravaganza there. By the rules, if you cast a spell using a bonus action, the only other spell you can cast that turn is a cantrip. You cast Misty Step, it's still the same turn. You can't cast your counterspell. Doesn't really make sense. And some DMs say, yes, you can. Well, I don't care. Because a lot of times they don't even realize there's that weird interaction with the rules. But then sometimes, to me, that's sort of an AD&D type quirkiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you were you were doing other stuff. Guess what? This is this is how the rules are written. I'm going to enforce it this way. Um, <laughs> but people get mad. Well, that's not, you know, and they now they want to grind the game to a halt, argue about halt, argue about it. Um that's the difference. In AD&D, guess what? I'm the DM, man. This is this is a ruling. I yeah. you know, like said you can't hit that guy with a magic missile cuz you can't see him. He's on the other side of the webs. Yeah, you can see where he is in the webs, but you can't see him. That's a very old school ruling. Yep. And players would just be like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to come up with something different. I guess I'm going to firebolt the web so that he falls, which is probably a better move anyway, because a 30-foot fall is going to cause more damage than, than a single, <laughs> than, than a single yeah. magic missile. Right. 
All right, well, I don't know about you, but uh, I think I'm going to stick with my way of playing. I am going to try to incorporate more old school feel into my new school games. I should probably be afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've already died twice, so. That's true. I'm used to it. Well, I hope that the (laughs) listeners out there have uh, enjoyed our dissertation, our picking apart of old school and new school, and our, these are our opinions on the differences and whether they're good, bad, or evil, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, I say chaotic neutral. (laughs) Oh, wait, that was a different podcast. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's a wrap. So, Greg, why don't you take us out? Yeah, if you want to give us your opinions on old school, new school, or whatever sort of special school you go to, you can find us on Facebook, where we are the Grognards. On um, Twitter, we are at T Grognards. And see, on Insta- it is harder than you think. <clears throat> I know. I got my glasses on today, so I can't see nothing. And on Instagram, we are the underscore Grognards and our, as of yet, unused email address, gamers at thegrognards.com. Hey, somebody out there, be the first to send us an email. Send Greg an email. Yeah, <laughs> be the first. All right, well, until next time, for the Grognards, I'm Dean Geiken. I'm Eric Hawley. And I'm Greg Ziegler. Game on. <laughs>